we pray for us? Our Father, we are surrounded uh, by confusion, by perversions, by injustices, all swirling around us. And, and they're even to be found within us. We struggle. And so we turn to you. We turn to your word and we see uh, promises of forgiveness, of shalom, of peace, the right ordering of things. That's what we need. Help us to believe that as we, as we hear your word spoken and preached, that we are standing on solid ground. That all flesh is like grass and its glory, like the flowers, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but, but your word stands forever. And so would you give us the solid footing that comes from the hearing of your word? Help us to believe that it's true. We pray for your spirit to to apply it to our hearts. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So we have been in this prayer of, of Jesus. It's the high priestly prayer. It's found in John chapter 17. We've just read one, one portion of it. We've been here for three weeks now. And um, at, at the beginning of the prayer, at the early verses of John chapter 17, Jesus prays for himself, for the work that he is about to do in a matter of hours, right? Just, just less than a day. Uh, his death will come, and he's praying this prayer, and he prays for that great work. He prays for his disciples as he sends them on, on mission to declare that work of Christ to the world. We looked at that last week. And this morning, these verses that Jay just read for us, Jesus prays for you, and he prays for me. He prays for all believers. You might think of it this way, and over the course of this prayer, which takes up the whole chapter, chapter 17 of John's gospel, Jesus prays for his church acquiring work. He prays for his church building apostles who will go out and build the church. And he prays for his church, his people, the believers, us, you and me. Look at verse 20. I don't ask for these only, referring to the disciples, the apostles, that he will send out to declare the gospel. I don't pray for them only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. For all Christians, for Christ's church, he prays for them. And remember, we've said this before, but a person's prayers reveals their heart, their priorities, what they dream of, what they wish for, what they hope for. And that's no exception here. What does Jesus pray for? Does he pray, oh, Father, I pray that they would know the fine points of Reformed theology. Father, I pray that they would memorize their Westminster Shorter Catechisms and the larger catechism. Father, I pray that they would be able to distinguish amillennialism from post-trib premillennialism. That's not what he prays for. He prays, he prays, in a word, he prays for unity. He prays that the church would be one. And what I want us to see this morning is that, um, that, that there's that three things, really. The goal, unity, which we just mentioned. The goal, the means, and then the effect. What's the effect? So the goal is unity, the means for that unity, and then what's the effect of that unity? So we're going to consider those three things as we, as we consider this prayer. So first, the goal. The goal. Look at verse 21. 
Jesus prays that they may all be one. All right, and then verse 22, same thing. The glory that you have given me, Father, I give to my people, my church, that they may be, there it is again, that they may be one as we are one. And then verse 23 again. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Christ prays for unity. That's the goal. And again, the the prayer reveals Jesus' heart. This is Jesus' heart for the church, that we would be one. And here's the thing to remember. Again, he's on the cusp of an agonizing death. His spirit is in turmoil. The other gospels record that he's sweating blood. He's under so much stress that his capillaries have burst and blood is oozing through his pores. And he's, and in the midst of that, he's thinking about you and me and he's praying that we would be one. That the church would be a family united to one Lord. And that's a unique thing for any organization. The church, you know, any, any organization to be one. It's it's a rare thing. Disunity is a constant feature of life in a fallen world. Aren't things things constantly falling apart? There's a physics law that says that this is just the case, right? It's like the second law of thermodynamics, I believe, that entropy defines the world, that things fall apart, they break apart, that, that it doesn't just apply to physical things. It's not just a physical law. Social relations fall apart. Nations are divided. Races are divided. Cultures are divided. There's regional divisions. There's divisions within, within families. And on and on. And yet Jesus prays that the church would be one. Now, still, you can't help but notice that the church often does not feel united as one. Do you know how many Presbyterian churches there are, denominations? I don't. There's too many. There's too many to count. Just a few. Just a sampling. There's the PCUSA, the PCA, that, that's our denomination. There's the OPC, the EPC, the ECO, the RPCNA, the RPC, the APC. And all of them have kind of sprung off from little divisions over different things. Some warranted. Some I'm not sure that they are. And, and that's not even to mention all the varieties of Protestants. Right? There's Baptists, and there's Anglicans, and there's Lutherans, and there's Methodists, and each one of those has a hundred different offshoots. Right? Just division, 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 and that's not even to mention Roman Catholicism and Protestants, and then, and then Russian Orthodox, and Greek Orthodox, and, and Coptic Christians, and each, just divisions, it appears, right? Well, we as a church, King's Cross, have... Our, our, our goal, our aspiration is to have a posture of unity and charity and generosity towards other Christians. And that, that might be a little, there, there is within kind of our little branch of Christianity, sometimes a bit of superiority. I believe, I'm reformed because my theology I believe, I think, believe it lines up with the scriptures, and it's a real rich, deep theology that we have. And really, at the center of that theology is grace. Now, how ironic that Reformed Christians who exalt grace might also be known at times as some of the most persnickety, 
of Christians, very proud of their Reformed, of their clear understanding of Reformed theology. We don't, our, our objective as a church is to be little c Catholic, right? Catholic in the sense of universal. We want to tie ourselves to Christians throughout the, the globe and throughout time. We want to root ourselves in the historic creeds of the church, the Apostle and the Nicene, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and to the degree that we can, kind of lock arms with Christians from, from that big stream of Christianity. We also want to, um, we, we appreciate and we, we consider ourselves to be inheritors of, of the evangelical tradition. Now that word can, is a loaded one and some people say just throw it out altogether. But what I mean when I say that is the evangelicalism of, of George Whitfield and John Stott and the Wesley brothers. And in the 20th century, guys like Carl Henry, Billy Graham, Harold Ockengay, John Stott. We want to be coming out of that flow as well. And then, so Catholic, little c Catholic, evangelical, and then Presbyterian and Reformed, which we love and embrace as a church. But here's the thing. There's many that flip that on its head. Presbyterian and Reformed first and then on down the way. And then if you don't share my theology of infralapsarianism, or church pews versus chairs, or whatever it is, then I can't have anything to do with you. We can't partner. And I believe that's a problem. The truth is that many Reformed folks especially have isolated themselves from the broader church. We, we develop what I would call Starbucks ordering habits within our churches. We approach a church like we order a Starbucks drink, Grande, shake and espresso, one pump of classic syrup, substitute half and half for milk, but light on half and half, add ice. And if there's two pumps of classic in that little drink, look out barista. It's going to be a, not a happy camper on the other side of that counter. And yeah, but, but, we, but we, we can approach churches like this, right? I want a church where a pastor wears a robe. And there's a choir, a, a, a contemporary choir, not a traditional choir, and an organ. Or I want a church where the offering plates are silver, not gold. I want a church, or maybe this, I want a church where the pastor wears kind of a t-shirt and jeans. And, and, and it's electric worship. It's contemporary, but it's electric. Or I want contemporary worship, but it needs to be acoustic. Or, or I want pews and a pulpit. That's the church for me. Or, I, you know, I want chairs and a pastor to be on a bar stool. I want a house church, traditional church, and on and on and on. And here's the thing. If, if we cultivate Christians that are so picky and choosy, so persnickety, that they can't find a church within a hundred mile radius of Oklahoma City, because there's just none that quite fit. In Oklahoma City, by the way, like where there's a church on every corner, We've, we've, we've done a disservice, I believe. There are many great churches across this metro. Will they line up with every little point that you, no, they won't. But that's part of the point. You have to learn how to submit yourself to these authorities and, 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 and just take a posture of humility. And we're trying, we're trying to do that. We're trying to develop a church worship uh, patterns that are based on scripture and also based on tradition. I believe that if St. Augustine were here this morning, an African bishop from the 5th century who has no idea how to speak modern English, 
If he was here, he would look around and he'd say like, he'd think to himself, this must be Christian worship. I recognize some of this. There's, there's a cup. There's bread. There's sacraments. There's the reading of scripture. There's the singing of hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. There's the confession of sin. People are bowing on their knees. They're confessing their sin. They're being assured of their pardon. They're taking up an offering. There's the preaching of the word. It look, it's recognizably Christian worship is taking place here. I believe that to be the case. And, and praise God that that's, that's so. And that, that's why we want to connect with the historic church. That's part of what I believe it means to be, to fulfill this prayer that Jesus is praying for us. Unity. But there's also an internal unity. Not just like with churches across space and time, although we we do strive for that, but also within this body, an internal unity. He prays for unity. It's what we want, isn't it? We long for it, but it's very hard. And maybe you don't feel very connected to, to King's Cross Church. And, and, um, and that's natural, especially if you're, if you're newer. That's normal to feel a little disconnected. It's work. It requires an investment on your part. It requires to serve and to, to be involved, to, to show up to things. And of course, it's awkward at first. It always is. But just keep coming. Keep showing up. Now, some of you may look, you come in and you look on the outside and you're like, all these people know each other so well. Well, it's because, it's because they, these people have relationships that go way back. Um, and that, that is true in some cases. In some cases, some relationships go way back in this church. In some cases, they don't at all. Some of the deepest relationships I've developed over the course of our three years here are, are people that I didn't know when we planted this church. People that I didn't know a year after we planted this church. People that just started coming, and they kept coming. And then we started spending time together, and then we were in a community builder group together, and on and on and on, and all of a sudden, relationships are forged. But it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy. But it's critical. Community is critical. The alternative is awful. What's the alternative to community? Loneliness. And loneliness is literally killing us. I read an, read an article recently about the suicide rate, and much of it stems from loneliness. People just have no, they have no friends, nobody that they could call if they had an issue or got sick in the night or needed a ride or had a flat tire or whatever it is. They have no friends, and they're lonely, and they're mentally depressed. There's mental health that flows out of that, and, and then at, at its most extreme, people take their lives because they have no friends. And Jesus is praying, as as blood is is oozing out of his pores, as he is experiencing the weight of the the cross that he is about to bear, he prays for us to be one. That's the goal of the prayer, that we would be one. Now, visibly, as we said, the church appears to be very divided, but the reality is that the church is one. United by the Spirit, a new birth of the Spirit, that there are Christians in all of these different denominations and all these different cultures all across the world, united to, to, to the Spirit, united to one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father of all. And what Jesus is praying for is that that, re, that inward, largely invisible spiritual reality would be made manifest to the world. 
Now, the question is, how do we make it manifest to the world? How do we show that, that inward, true unity that exists in the church? How do we manifest it in our midst so that we see it? Well, that's the second point, the means for the unity. The means. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus prays that we would be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they also may be in us. And look look at 23 again as well. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Did you see the basis? I, I like the way Bruner translates what we just read. Listen to what he says, the commentator. He says that they may be one. You, Father, are in me. That that you, as you, Father, are locked into me, and I am locked into you, that they, my church, would be locked into me. Locked in. That as I, in verse 23 again, I am locked in to them as you are locked into me, that they may become one. The basis for our oneness is our being locked into Christ securely in his care. John 10, chapter 10, verse 29, back in the, um, when he talks about being the great shepherd, the good shepherd, he says that my sheep, well, this is what he says in, in verse 29 of chapter 10, my father has given my sheep to me. And he, this is the better way to translate it. And my sheep are the greatest, my greatest possession. They are the greatest thing to me. And therefore, because my sheep are my most prized possession, nobody can snatch them from my hand. Nobody. They, you, you just can't take them because they are my most special thing. And I'm using all of my strength, all of my wisdom, all of my power to keep them in my hand. Nobody can snatch them from, 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 from my hand. So, so here's the question. What is that kind of security, that being locked into Christ, what does that do to us? Actually, let's back up just a bit. What's the basis for our security in Christ, for being locked in to Christ? That's, that's the question. What's the basis? What's the foundation for that security in Christ, being locked into him? Here's the answer. You ready? We just sang it a moment ago. The grace of God. The grace of God is the basis. We've got a reason to sing, right, as we sang just a moment ago. Amazing grace. That's the basis for being locked into to Christ. And here's the thing. Grace is a, is, is a key ingredient to unity. Think of this. Paul was dealing with the church at Corinth, which was a, had some serious problems. And one of the big problems they had was quarreling and division within their midst. They were a very, it was, a, it was an entrepreneurial hub. I, I kind of think of it maybe as like Silicon Valley, Corinth. And so there was a lot of success that waited just people with energy and drive because it, it, was, it was that kind of place. And, 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 um, and so they, within the church at Corinth, they had kind of gotten these hierarchy. And people were divided based on who followed who and who followed this person. I followed Paul. And this is what Paul says to them. Brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful not many of you were of like of noble birth, but God chose the foolish 
so that he might shame the wise. He chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the low and despised. And because of him, because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it's written, our boast is in the Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, what Paul is, is implying here is that division springs from the haves thinking that they're better than the have-nots. And that, the, 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 the haves, the people with musical ability, are better than the people with no musical ability. Or the people, you know, there's, there's, there's a hundred examples, right? I'm better than you because I'm racially superior than you are. I'm better than you because I come from wealth and you come from poverty. It's probably because of laziness. I'm better than you because I come from poverty and I have to work for what I've earned. And you just got everything handed to you on a silver spoon. I'm better than you because I listen to this type of music. Or I'm better than you because I don't care about music. I'm not obnoxious about what music I listen to. I listen to all music. All but, and I could do this all day. All, all boasting comes from, from, from a desire to establish ourselves in something as silly and insignificant as that. I wear this kind of shoe, or I drive this kind of car. I'm economical, and I drive thrift, or I'm luxurious, and I drive luxuriant, luxuriance. I, I, don't, I think I got that word right. Luxuriance. Um, whatever it is, all boasting is a desire to establish ourselves. And Paul says, hey, Corinthian Christian, Christ is what established you. You're locked into him. And how are you locked in? By grace. By the grace of Christ. You didn't do anything. You just received it. It eradicates grace, eradicates all grounds for boasting, except for, as Paul says, in Christ. Let the one who boasts, boast in Christ. Do you see how the, do you see how the gospel lays the, found, the, the groundwork for unity? Between parties, factions, divisions. What draw, it's, it's, it, it is a unique means for unity in the world. I can think of no better foundation for unity than the gospel of Jesus Christ. What draws us to God is humility and need and awareness that, that, that we are worse than we dare admit. And then receiving the grace that comes in response to that awareness and turning to Christ. And it's on that basis that Christ is building one holy apostolic church. And when you're born again, when the Spirit brings you to spiritual life, from spiritual death to spiritual life by nothing that you do, just like you didn't do anything to be born, uh, same thing, spiritual birth. It's, it, it's, it's a work of the Spirit. You were passive and you didn't do anything. And when that happens, your ethnic background fate recedes to the background. Your socioeconomic attainment and status recedes to the background. All other social divisions that existed before just recede to the background. And so who is the church made up of? Everyone. The church is made up of everyone. Rich and poor, male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free, black and white, Republican and Democrat. All of these barriers have been blown apart, blown to bits by Christ. I mean, listen, if, 
if we, we have political divisions have um, ripped many churches apart, if you are a if you vote Republican and you feel as though you have more affinity with a non-Christian Republican than you do with a Christian Democrat, there's a problem there. It's not our political affiliation that unites us. It's the work of the Spirit. It's the work of Christ that unites us. And, and flip that around if, if it applies. I don't, I don't, there's nothing behind how I ordered that. Um, so, barriers are obliterated by Christ's powerful work on the cross. Listen to what Ben Meyer says. He says, the boundaries of the church are as wide as the human race. No barrier can div- divide Christ's people. Not, not even the greatest barrier. You know what the greatest barrier is? Death. There is this huge barrier between the living and the dead. And many of you have loved ones that are now, have passed on to the other side. And they're dead. That's a boundary, right? Even Christ breaks through that barrier. Listen, listen to what Ben Meyer says again. He says, death splits the human family into two classes, the living and the dead. All other social divisions are petty compared to this great division. All human beings are powerless before this fundamental boundary. But in the resurrection, Jesus has stepped across the barrier. He's restored communion between the living and the dead. And he has formed one family that stretches out not just across space, not just across the globe, but also across time. The body of Christ, the church, is the most inclusive community imaginable because it includes not only those who are now living, but all believers who have ever lived. You see how... Do you see how the work of Christ is the means for our unity between the divisions that are somewhat petty and between the great division, death? It overcomes death. He's broken down that barrier. Let me try to give you another example of how the grace of God in Christ is the, found, is the means by which we achieve this unity. Many of you probably saw DeMar Hamlin um, go down of cardiac arrest in the middle of a football game after a fairly routine play. Here, here's a 24-year-old man, you know, professional athlete, one of the greatest athletes in the world, and routine play, cardiac arrest, falls to the ground, and, and you, see the, you see the players, you see the fear on their face, you see the concern, and the question is, did he, pa- did he pass on to the other side? Is he not with us anymore? Is he gone? And the, the truth is, he would have been gone had an Oklahoman actually not intervened and administered CPR. And then had he not been rushed to the hospital to receive the marvels of medical, uh, modern med- medicine. And that's what happened. And he, was, he came back to life. I mean, he, he came back. He's with us now. Now, do you emerge from an experience like that with a swagger and thinking like, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. I did it. You guys, thanks for praying for me, but I crushed it. Now, I, I don't see you responding from that with anything but gratitude. Gratitude. Because you're, you're literally helpless on a field, completely dependent upon the intervention of others. That, the Hamlin moment, is a, is a picture of our 
salvation experience. We were spiritually dead, without hope. And the Spirit of God rushes in to deliver, by sheer grace, the life that we need to emerge from our death, our spiritual death. That experience, that salvation experience, is a life-giving and life-defining experience. And there's no way you emerge from that with haughtiness and superiority. You just can't. It's humility that that creates in your heart. Gratitude that that creates in your heart. Peter, now, now here's the thing though. So that's great that that is our story. But we often forget it, don't we? Peter forgot it. Do you remember when Peter forgot to live in step with the gospel and he started thinking himself better than those Gentile, those dirty Gentile Christians? Paul confronts him on this in Galatians. Because what happens is Peter is saying, yes, everybody, Greek, there's no Jew-Greek distinction. We're all one in Christ. You know, we, 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 let's lock arms. Peter was all about that. But here's what happened. When the Judaizers came, the Jewish Christians that wanted to enforce Jewish ways on the Gentile believers, like circumcision and other things, do you know what Peter did when they would kind of came around? He'd like get away from the Gentiles. I don't want to be associated with them in front of these guys. And Paul confronts him and says, Paul, or he says, Peter, you are not lit. You remember what he says? You're not living in step with the gospel. You're not living in step with the experience, with grace, with the grace of God. It, it came to you just like it came to the Gentiles. We're all one in Christ. That's the foundation. So let me ask you, are you living in step with the gospel? Are you living in step with the grace of God to you in Christ? That is the foundation. The grace of God in Christ is the our security in him, our being locked into him is the is the means by which we arrive at the unity that Christ prays for. But the final question I want us to consider. So we got the the goal of the prayer right here that we just read is unity. The means is our security in Christ, which comes by way of grace. And then I want us to consider the result, the effect of, of that unity. Look at, look at uh, verse 21. It's the final point, and we'll be fairly brief. Look at verse 21 again. Jesus prays, I pray that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be in us. Look, here's the effect. So that... Uh, the world may believe that you've sent me. And then verse 23 again. I in them, I locked into them, you locked into me, that they may become perfectly one, unity, with the result that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. Jesus is praying, he's telling us, that our unity is one of the most effective tools of evangelism. Our unity speaks to the truthfulness of the gospel and the gospel claims of Christ, that Jesus actually is the one sent by the Father. That's what our unity says, and that's what he prays, that it would have an evangelistic effect within the world. The church, for all of its outward division, is tied to the Son Tied to the Father and to the Spirit. And therefore, there is real 
unity, a profound unity that we should strive to manifest. And this is a, it's a human longing. It's a human longing. I remember when I was young, uh, all the most popular musicians in the world, mostly in the U.S., but maybe some, a few global folks, um, got together to sing We Are the World. They locked arms. It was beautiful. Um, and they were, they were demonstrating this, this longing that we have for unity, to be one. We are the world. We're the ones who are going to make a, a better place. And here's the thing. That's an ancient desire. That desire for unity goes all the way back to Babel. Remember the people? They wanted to come together. Let's make ourselves strong. Let's come together. Let's build up a, a tower that we can fortify ourselves, strengthen ourselves, and be one. But they were trying to do it. Here was the, pro, the flaw of the experiment. They were trying to do it apart from God. And God confuse, it, condemns the project, confuses the language, and creates a forced dispersion. He, remember the cultural mandate? Genesis uh, chapter 1, to fill the earth and subdue it? Well, they weren't doing that at Babel. They were coming together to not do that. And so God says, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll force that by confusing the language. And so the people disperse. They fill the earth and multiply and spread. But here's the thing. The promises to Abraham were promises for all nations. And remember what happens at Pentecost when the Spirit comes down on the apostles? It's a reversal of Babel. The Spirit enables the, the apostles to speak in the languages of all of those present. It's, it's, the, it's a complete reversal of Babel, and that's what God is saying. I am bringing about one people out of many through my Spirit. The only, so here's the point. The only place where humanity can find real, substantial unity is in Christ. And it stands to reason. His barrier-crossing work. Remember, he came from heaven to earth. It's incredible. Incredible barrier that he crossed. He came from life. He's, he's living when he's praying this prayer. He's about to cross over into death. And then he's going to come back from the dead to life. And then he's going to go from earth to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. You see all those barriers that he's crossing? He's, he's ripping holes in all of these barriers so that you and I can pass over into life, so that we can pass over into resurrected life. So that we, but here's the thing. The biggest crossing of the biggest barrier is our alienation from God. That was the big thing that separated us from God. And he, cried, he atoned for sin on the cross, breaking open that gate wide open so that all might enter in Christ, receive forgiveness from their creator, and live, uh, live a life forever, being united with, with ones who have passed over into death in a resurrected world. He's uniting all things to himself. I'm going to close with what Paul uh, says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, there is one body, one church, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope, hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to realize the prayer. It, it, it is realized. Uh, it, it's real. There is real unity um, within your church. But we pray that it would be manifested. 
as Jesus prayed here, that, that it would be seen and that folks would be drawn to it. Help us to get our, our teeth into the, the, the means, the grace, to really understand uh, how your salvation has come to us, that it would work its way deep into our bones so that we have nothing but humility and gratitude to offer the world, to offer our spouses, to offer our siblings, our friends, our bosses, our neighbors, that we would be pouring ourselves out, much like Christ poured himself out for the world and brought salvation and oneness. We pray these things in his powerful name. Amen.